Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Stella. Hello. How are you this week? I'm doing well. I I also am aware of something. This episode is coming out on March 17th, which is St. Patrick's Day. I'm wearing green. And so am I. That was totally by accident. It dawned on me when I saw you on video. We were both in green and that's going to be a St. Patrick's Day. Maybe we should talk about that as the Irish person in this group, Stella. Tell us. Yeah. Well, you know, Sasha, me, my favorite song that I've sent to you is You Don't Have to Be Irish to Be Irish. Oh, that's right. I love that. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes for the, yes. for the more discerning listener. <laughs> yeah, Paddy, well, we often call it Paddy's Day in, in Ireland. It's, it's, a, it's a funny day because it's very badly judged to be in March, which is a cold, wet, rotten day in Ireland generally. Yeah. And there's all these parades and an awful lot of girls in bare legs who are doing their Irish dancing and they're cold. Their legs are freezing. Blue. <laughs> and it's got very, very high tech in the last 10, 20 years and it's got very uh, flamboyant and stuff. And it's great. It's great. It's it's a it's a lovely family, family, family day. It's really nice, you know. That's it, so great. Yeah. Yeah. But when it was what are you guys going to do? When I was a teenager, it was just oh. drinking, drink, 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 drink. We were like caricatures. <laughs> but we That's have, the we reputation have... it has here. It's just an excuse for like guys yeah. and frat frat boys and frat girls or yeah. sorority girls to get really, really <laughs> yeah, no, that, that inebriated. Would also, that would also be traditional. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, there's a lot going on beyond St. Patty's Day. Yeah. Um, yeah we, we launched a, a website, Beyond Trans, and um, we, we've we've had this initiative called Beyond Trans for the last year, year, nearly, well, nine months. And that was on our website, but now we've kind of moved it over separate. So it's its own website. It's for people who've moved beyond transition, very much around the whole D-Trans Awareness Day vibe. And um, the idea is to help people who've been negatively impacted by medical transition. And some of them stay transitioned and some of them detransition. But the point is they're beyond transition in their mind. So it's called beyondtrans.org and it's our our big new woohoo at the moment. That's so exciting. Well, you've been talking about the Beyond Transition project for a while. I know you're, of course, a big part of it. Joe Burgo, our get out friend, is part of it. Is Beyond Trans the website for Beyond Transition? Yes, yes. We've shortened it okay. to beyondtrans.org. Beyond Transition was good. Uh, we had difficulty getting the names in any way. I suddenly thought Beyond Trans is easier. It's less yeah. less syllables. It's it's kind of catchier. So kind of went with it for two reasons. And I like it. I'm happy with it. Yeah, Beyond Trans. And we're kind of I like with this beyond everything. Yeah. Like beyond yeah. radicalization, beyond WPATH, beyond, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's our theme. And I'm really yeah. into it. And I like Beyond Trans a lot because 
the word transition as a standalone can mean a lot of different things. But I think today in our culture, when you hear trans, you know what we're talking about. We're talking about the identity. We're talking about the medical piece. So you're kind of saying these are individuals who are moving beyond the entire project of trans related stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Beyond what you could say beyond LGBTQ or whatever. But yeah, that's exactly Mm. the difference. And uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a great new website and we're, We've got like some great designs on it and great services. All the services that we've all we've been offering since last June we launched, and we yeah. kind of offer you know funding for for people who want to get therapist who's you know um, and so they might get a therapist from Getter or they might get a therapist what from whatever, and we we've offered to kind of help fund it, and we did that through having a webinar last year, and that started us off in the funding of that. But I, I find we've really, there's a real uptake in the numbers. So now we're getting an average of one query a day, which, wow. which is a lot. Yeah. The numbers are What exploded. was it at the beginning? Um, at the beginning, we had a huge number right at the beginning. And then it calmed down mm. and it was a couple every week. And they were all looking for pretty similar. It was quite common that the same kind of issues arising, yeah. you know. And then... Um, for example, a lot of people looking for help about their medical complications. A lot of people looking for help about therapeutic. We offer lots of things like group therapy and DBT support groups and all sorts of mm-hmm. kind of kind of wider based job skills and, you know, helping you with your CV, psychoeducation about, you know, you know, let's say different kind of subjects such as your voice your hair, mm. all that psychoeducation. It's kind of, I've found an awful lot of people who've in this, and we're going to talk about this in this session, but mm. and I shouldn't go to the session in this episode, <laughs> um, but they're, they're very suspicious of therapy. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 I can yeah. completely imagine. Yeah. That's huge. Well, um, you know, when this episode comes out, we would be kind of in the midst of the, the week of kind of detrans awareness. And so we, we will include all of the links to really amazing events that have been happening. If you want to check them out, most of them are often recorded or you can kind of go after the fact and take a look. So for those of you who didn't get a chance to participate or if you want to revisit these events, we'll, we'll definitely include a lot of notes, yeah. uh, links in the notes. And another cool piece of news for us, Stella, is that we contributed to an anthology about therapy. It's a book called Cynical Therapies, Perspectives on Anti-Therapeutic Nature of Critical Social Justice. And this is a book released by CTA, which is an organization we're a part of called Critical Therapy Antidote. And you and I co-wrote two chapters about, of course, about gender. What else would we be writing about? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The first chapter was called Transitioning Children, the Clinician's Assumptions, and Client Suggestibility. And then the second chapter, we talked about the new cohort and the new interventions. And we wrote this we wrote these series of chapters quite a while back. So, so much changes in the gender world, as everybody listening probably knows. So the landscape is quite different now. And I think had we written it this week, I would have added some different things. Yeah. But I think we we kind of lay out what happens in a kind of psychic epidemic when the entire culture, doctors included, therapists included, get wrapped up in um, a new theory, a new belief about a disorder or a condition and how that can lead to a medical scandal. That's basically what the chapters are about. And there are a lot of other great contributors as well talking about different aspects of psychotherapy and how it's been impacted by 
certain types of social justice beliefs. And so if anyone is interested to read this book, especially if you're a clinician, this would be a really good one to read. So um, it was edited by Dr. Val Thomas. She's been amazing through this process and we'll we'll include that in the notes as well. And if you look up Critical Therapy Antidote, a lot of people don't know about it and it's brilliant. It's a brilliant website and there are brilliant therapists involved in it. And, you know, it's, it's very much kind of almost a... Uh, a partner piece with cynical theories. Do you remember James Lindsay and Helen yeah. Crows? They they wrote that book, and now this is Chris. What what's it called? Cyn- what's cynical therapies? Yeah, cynical therapies. Yeah, so it's a clever play on those words, and it's it's a it's in. If I've read some of the chapters, and it's it's frightening how therapy is being dumbed down. It's yeah. frightening what's happening to therapy. I think a lot of our listeners are aware of that. And so this book really nails that. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, it's great. And I think it really aligns with something that you and I talk about a lot. And we talk about it in Geta a lot, just the importance of maintaining the integrity of therapy and what therapy is meant to be. Um, Kind of looking at the individual, the you know, considering context as always. Like, it's not new for therapists to be considering you know, cultural issues, family background, like that's all always been part of therapy. It almost reminds me of the conversion therapy debate, which you eloquently talked about, which is for a long time, therapists have been very mindful not to practice conversion therapy. Like, so the addition of these bands almost feels like this redundant, uh, Mm. it's almost like a distraction. So within therapy, generally speaking, we kind of believe in the same thing. Therapy has always attempted to be humanistic and considering different factors. And yet there's this kind of new version of social justice therapy, which actually really degrades the profession. So we're we're very excited to have taken part in it. And I can't wait to read the whole book. Yeah. Yeah. So today. Yeah. Let's get at today's discussion. Yeah. I know you were really, really looking forward to doing this. We've touched on detransition before, but as we mentioned, you know, so much changes, so many very vocal and public facing detransitioners have come in onto the scene and gotten a lot of media attention, which is new. I think last time we talked about this, there was very little kind of attention paid in the, the mainstream media to detransition. And so we want to kind of dive deep into you know, what do, what do we sense as therapists observing the identity of the detransitioner, the experiences of the detransitioner? Um, for, for anyone tuning in for the first time, detransitioners, uh, do you want to define detransition? You're the resident expert here. For sure. <laughs> well, is anybody an expert on this very new process that <laughs> yes. we're learning about every day? You've got a lovely line, Sasha, along the lines of I'm learning with you. What What is it you say? Yeah, I tell parents all the time, we're we're learning together, like we're learning alongside each other, because none of us have any data about this. So we're figuring it out as we go. Because nobody can really say right now that they're an expert in detransition, because yes, there has been detransition in other decades, but this phenomenon of detransition is happening as a collective. It's happening in a very different way, and it's happening in a different climate, and so yeah. the whole response is incredibly different. So we are figuring it out. And I know a few detransitioners who detransitioned, let's say, five years ago. And they're like still saying, I'm going through a process here. 
They're still, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? They're not saying, oh, I've kind of, and some of them, you know, there's a, there's a definite arc that you could say that you could say that the, quite commonly there's certain um, experiences a lot of detransitioners have, but w- where they're going to go in the future, I think we don't know. We don't, we, we really, we're really kind of at sea with that. And that that's kind of frightening to me because I think, a lot of people think, first of all, they think transition is the answer. And then they think detransition is the answer. And then they realize there is no answer. And that's really frightening. Yeah. And I think it kind of depends on where someone is in their own process of transition that might determine how easy or challenging the detransition process could be. But but generally speaking, detransition is a word used to describe people who identified as trans, took some medical steps towards what we call, you know, gender affirming care, which is actually an attempt to appear like the other sex that you prefer to be. And then through a variety of different reasons, and we're going to talk about how complicated that can be, these individuals decide to stop the medical process. Many of them revert to their birth sex identity, and some do not. Some continue to identify as transgender, but stop the medical process. And as as you know, and as we have been talking about, a lot of people feel like they were really harmed by gender-affirming care. We, we've interviewed several detransitioners on our program before. So we interviewed Richie, most recently, we interviewed Teresios. Yeah, Teresios. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked to Carol. That was early on. Yeah. And Helena. Yeah. Um, and we talked to one de sister named Lauren was a pseudonym. But the four detransitioners that I mentioned um, are amongst some of the kind of more vocal detransitioners that we know. Yeah. And their stories are all very different. I mean, that's what's so interesting. Very, very different stories. Very, very different. And we talked to Brian as well, who was a detransition oh, from Brian. another era, which was yes. interesting for that reason, if you follow me, because these days when people detransition, it's a very political act. Yeah. And it it's a very turning your back on the community. Back in the day of Brian's detransition, it was not. He, you know, he he was still part of the community, but he was detransitioning. It wasn't the same. It didn't feel like it was the same political. Yeah. And, and in fact, he called it retransition, you know. He did, yeah. It's interesting because, yeah. I mean, today that is that is a term that's used by a lot of trans mm. activists, but a lot of detransitioners really hate that term. And mm. I think, you know, when, when I look back at our conversation with Brian, he seems to have felt um, as though his transition was truly something that he did as an exploration and had some really positive qualities to it for him. And then when he detransitioned, it was also kind of a, a place of self-acceptance. And he seems to have adjusted very well to the entire, you know, roller coaster that he was on. But what we see with a lot of detransitioners today is a very, it's almost like the harsh reality of the immutability of sex will hit them and all of the fantasies that they placed in transition start to dissolve for a variety of reasons. And they don't actually feel like, oh, this is all just part of a fantastic journey of self-exploration. 
no, it often feels like this very dark realization that something horrible has happened to me and now I don't believe in it anymore. Uh, Yes. And that is a huge amount of baggage to bring with you. And previous to any of that, there was distress. There was distress that made them think that transition was the answer to their distress. Then there was transition and there was often an awful lot of belonging and a huge false hope, a huge kind of expectation of the life ahead. So they've lived yeah. through all that and they're G'd up by the community and it's all. And it can often have mm. been very political and very exhilarating and very, you know what I mean, part of the solution to the new world kind of vibe. Then there has been the extraordinarily lonely dark nights of the soul where I remember one person telling me, I, you know, during the day I was great, I was flying, I was, you know, with them all in the parades. And then I'd wake up in the middle of the night going, <gasps> what, what have I done? What have I done? And then the next day I'd be back, ordinary. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And just kept on catching yeah. them in their own conscious. So I could see that happening for, I call them the lost years. That can happen for a long, long time for somebody. And then they might take the road to detransition, not all people, but some people, or to reject, to say, I, uh, this isn't going well. This isn't going mm-hmm. well. I've just been watching Jazz Jennings and she seems, I'm not saying she's going to detransition or anything, but she has kind of officially said, this isn't going well. You know what I mean? There's a horrible feeling of, I feel, I, I don't know her, I shouldn't mm-hmm. be saying that, but, you know, mm-hmm. you could see where she's coming to. And then there's the kind of, there can be, it's, it's such a complicated kind of road, but it can be euphoria of, okay, well, that's the problem. I shouldn't have transitioned. So I'll detransition. But when you detransition, there can be a bit of euphoria around that because, oh, I've kind of taken that monkey off my back. And there can be a community. There can be a kind of, come on, you know, join yeah. us. And um, then there can be, Way back in the beginning, the very distress that still hurt them all those years are, is still there. And it has been laden on with other baggage, such as they've been hurt by professionals, they've been led astray, they've got into stuff that they shouldn't have got into, they have huge regrets. So that distress was only the beginning of something that now feels almost you know, too big, too overwhelming to deal with. I can see why people just think, oh, I can't, I can't detransition. It's too big for my mind, mm-hmm. my survival, my psychological survival depends on me just pretending to keep going because I can't face that level of gaping regret. It takes a lot of <sighs> courage to regret. Yeah. And it's it's interesting, like, it's it's impossible to separate this entire epidemic of transition from the role of social media and the internet. And I would say the same is true for detransition. You know, detransitioners become this public-facing character where they're talking about the most intimate and challenging thing they've ever been through and the realization that they maybe were harmed in a kind of medical scandal talking about that publicly becomes like the raison d'etre in a way yeah and and it's um such an incredible amount of pressure and it perhaps is part of the healing process because i think something really important about the detransition story is like this coming to grips with reality 
And as a therapist, I mean, I think that is such an important aspect of mental wellness is to face the reality that you're in, whether it's like I'm in an abusive marriage or um, my job is making me miserable or I have done something that I really regret. Like all of these things are part of coming to understand oneself. But also that isn't alone going to heal your underlying hurts, like what you just talked about, right? The, the thing that brought them to transition in the first place. So it's like people can get so busy with the project of being a public speaker about this or sharing their story. Yeah. And I do wonder, like when the cameras are off and you're not writing an op-ed and you're not being interviewed and you're home alone with yourself, what what is that experience like? You know, like that must be so challenging, to still have to deal with your 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 underlying hurts, your underlying difficulties. And more than that, I think that some people, um, they suit haven't spoken out. It, it kind of, it was cathartic. They were angry. They had something to say. They wanted to yell it out at the world. Yes. And it, it kind of got some, it lanced a wound or something. It got something out. Other people, I, I don't, I don't think it does suit them. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's very important that whoever whoever might be listening, that they try and figure out, does the limelight, does it suit them? Or maybe it doesn't. Another aspect of this, I, I think people need to be careful around if they are considering speaking out. It's very hard to talk about your your problems and your, your all the negatives of your life regularly. Without going yeah. to the few, you know, to the solution, yes. if you follow me. I know for our D-Trans Awareness Day, we, we have what's the best thing about detransition. You know what I mean? To kind of remind, like, as you can't just say, these are all the problems mm-hmm. of my mm-hmm. life. This is how it all went wrong, went wrong, 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 wrong. Psychologically, to continue to say that to either the media or to social media is very bad for your brain. Yeah. If I was to, I could easily, we could all easily name and go into detail all the wrong things in my life. And yeah. if the world was continuously asking me, don't tell me about the good stuff. That's all very nice for you. But what we want to hear about is the bad stuff. Because politically, it, yeah. it, it's, it's the big thing. Psychologically, anybody would say that that is a dubious thing to do. Again, do it a few times. I remember Kale, who worked in our film. We did a film, 2018, mm. Kids. And she came out, she was on the film, she came out, she spoke, she talked to the newspaper, she was on social media for a little while and then bang, it was done. And it was over, she'd sent her piece and I remember thinking, yeah. And then I remember a couple of years later, she sent me a photo that she was getting married. And I was like, wow, that, that's moving on. It was, it was kind yeah. of lovely watching Kale's kind of life develop. Yeah. That's such a good point. And it's it's very tricky because everything is so politicized. And I feel really torn about it because on one hand, I am so grateful that certain media outlets are taking interest in detransition and talking about it more. Um, because, you know, I, I often say there's always a, a nugget of truth in every narrative, even if it's an extreme narrative, right? And one of those extreme narratives that is being kind of used right now is like these individuals have been harmed and damaged. You know, like we see a lot of language like mutilated your body and and it's very complicated, butchered, right? 
Um, it's complicated because I think for some people that probably feels like an exactly accurate description of what they feel has been done to them. And I completely honor people's right to use that language. But I also think this narrative of these, um, these kind of poor victims who are just basically the detritus of this medical scandal is so disempowering for people who have lived through this. And we need to have a better way to kind of allow detransitioners to share their stories and talk about their experiences in a humanizing manner. Yeah. That is not like treating them as just kind of the, uh, like discarded remnants of this anti-medical kind of campaign, you know, like there's something really not helpful about that. Yeah. I thought it was very interesting that, you know, you know, the the ever expanding LGBTQ acronym and, um, you know, when there was noises around, well, why isn't there a D in the acronym for D for D trans? A lot of people who had detransitioned said, no, I don't want to be in that acronym. I don't yeah. want an identity. And yet detransition is arguably becoming an identity. And I don't, I think a lot of them are very understandably unhappy with that. They've had it with identities. They've had it with, (laughs) trying to move the hell away. And it it feels like it's kind of chasing them because I remember talking to one detransitioner and I should probably say person who detransitioned, but anyway, um, and Mm. said like, you know, this, you know, all these, all these people who are kind of almost fake transitioners are now fake detransitioning. And I'm a real detransitioner. And I could understand, you know, where he was coming from, as in, you know, there's, there's, there's a hierarchy and there's a hierarchy with transition. How much have you medically transitioned? How deep did you get in? And the very same with the detransition for you to be a detransitioner. Well, how, how much how much medicalization did you do? And then how are you wearing your detransition? Because some people kind of try to move on and live their life beyond it. And some people are quite stuck within it. And I can see why they are. I can so see. Yeah. I feel, yeah. I hope it's a process that you have to kind of work through and then think, I've spoken enough about this. I'm, I'm moving on. I hope that's what it is. But I fear it's not. I fear that sometimes people say it was the biggest event. It derailed me. I haven't got back on the rails. And the world needs to hear about that. And, you know, they, they need to tell their truth. They, they know more yeah. than we know. Yeah. What do you think then about this becoming an identity? Like a lot of people um, feel this kind of sense of obligation, almost like a moral obligation to share their experience of detransition because they think, you know, this might help other people who are considering um, gender identity or transition. And I feel like my story could help people. And I I really understand and appreciate that can be very healing. Um, And you, like you said, some people get, get thrust into the limelight, but they're in the middle of their own healing process too. And it gets very tricky. And none of us are, none of us are ever at some fixed end point of like growth, right? So we're all in process. I tell clients this all the time, like everything is a process. So it's not like you shouldn't, you shouldn't share your story until you're at some like readiness stage. There's no such thing. 
But I, I just see how complicated this can be for people when they become a detransitioner or a person who detransitioned. It becomes a sort of identity. And it's almost like, are you then stuck in a different kind of identity or persona or image? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's something that we need to be very careful of. I think uh, detransitioners in particular, um, the, I think you and I have seen it many times. I've certainly seen it many times where they, they come out of the trans, they fall into the almost the cult of the D-trans and then they come out of the, yeah. the D-trans and then they think, now I'm starting to find myself. Now I'm yeah. starting to find myself. You know, there, there's there's a kind of uh, a horrible, frankly, um, hashtag going around at the moment, which is death before detransition. Oh. It's frightening. And mm. that's where it's cementing a detrans identity because it's basically you go against our mentality of death before detransition. You are crossing the Rubicon over to the other side. You are now yeah. identifying as detrans. That's not fair because that is not yeah. what that person is doing. They're not identifying as detrans. They're saying personally, my experience, it's not working out and I'm going to stop getting ever deeper into a medicalized life. That's what they're actually yeah. doing. Yes. But, oh, in this awfully politically horrible climate, it's being made a political identity on them. And I, I, it feels like, oh my God, it's insult to injury to wound. I know. Yeah. They're actually trying to get out of a political identity and they're yeah. finding their story being used to impose a political identity onto them, which I couldn't imagine being more like, I'm almost thinking about the feeling of drowning or suffocating. Like you're clawing yourself out of something that is, that you feel has perhaps like destroyed parts of you. And you're trying to say like, that's not me anymore. And then people are just dumping more shit onto you. Like, it's just, it's so awful how much projection is on the D the detransition story. And, um, th that's, that's almost like why I feel so, I feel so compelled by like Eastern philosophy and the idea of disidentification, because really all of these labels, whether they're labels you choose for yourself or labels others put on you. Okay. They can be kind of a trap. Like, I really feel like that's, that's I don't know that's what's coming up for me right now as we think about this yeah I, I think that's such a good point I hadn't brought that in I'm going to bring that into my kind of understanding of of what's going on because I do think it's very important if somebody is facing the detransition that they're aware of the political pull they're aware of the imposition of another identity on them when they didn't look for it but it's yeah, being imposed it's upon fault. them just yeah. before. And they're aware of the kind of the negativity around that, which is, you know, which is really frightening. I think the loneliness I've I, in my work with detransitioners, the loneliness of the, the person who is detransitioned is under acknowledged. Do you know how warm they were in the community and how ostracized they become? And how kind of online is their only life because they don't have anything else to kind of 
to they have a community online. We all know after COVID, it's not as good. It's not as deep. But that's all they have. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's 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 really it's really frightening. Reminds me of this poem. I just got it up here. Do you ever hear of that autobiography in five chapters, five short chapters? You've talked about yeah, this before. Lovely. Read I'm it. Now. It's very it's very short. It's by Portia Nelson. So I'm imagining the transitioner, the detransitioner in this. So chapter Ooh. one, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm helpful, helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend that I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm Mm. in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit, but my eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. Oh, that's goosebumps. Yeah, isn't it lovely? It really is. So they kind of, I know that feeling, having gone through it in my (laughs) 20s. You fall in, you fall in. You think, I cannot believe I am back in this position. And I've met a lot of detransitioners who are kind of the, the terror of, I'm in the same position. I'm in the same position as I was when I was trans. I'm in it again. Oh my God, I'm so frightened. And it's like, it's okay. It's okay. You you can come, you can, it's a process. Like you say, it's a process. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I mean, that, that whole feeling of I'm in the same position. I wonder, are there specific examples that you're thinking of that have come up like what would make um a detransitioned person feel like oh god I'm in the same position as when I was trans yeah a few people have said this to me so they feel that they were in a huge community and they were fighting the good fight when they were trans then Mm. they went into the lonely years where they were frightened and they didn't know what to do they were disappointed then they came out tentatively as detrans and then they were celebrated in a very uncannily similar way by a whole different crowd of people, but who were very politically active, who were actually very, very, not a million miles from the other side, if you follow me. And they get enveloped, they get invited to rallies, they get invited to things. I totally get it. I would be there. I get it. I am there. But it can feel eerily familiar. And then you're still at home, like you said, you're still at home in your own bed going, who am I in this? What, what, what? You still have the distress that led you to the transition and to transition in the first place. And so then they can feel I'm too politically involved in my identity right now. Yeah. And I've left behind me. Me. Yeah. Just yeah. My my person who has, you know, hopes and dreams of living in the country and having a dog and having a partner and all yeah. that politics is is frankly distracting me from how am I how am I going to live now and it can be mm. a huge distraction I feel and I I know with Beyond Trans our, our our service for Genspect we're really into this whole like living beyond transition get your life back get a job big big deal with with this is kind of moving beyond because I think there's a bind that some detransitioners get into, which is, you know, I can get up and go on on YouTube and bleed my story out and make a few quid 
or I can try and get a boring job that will pay very little. And I'm pretty much famous over here online and nobody oh, yeah. knows me. And actually they don't respond well to me because I'm yeah. still detransitioning. I'm in a physically difficult place. So it's very difficult for many detransitioners to meet strangers. So they don't want to meet strangers. They only want to people, meet the people they know and the online world because it's so exhausting to meet a stranger who's yeah. trying to categorize whether you're a man or a woman, they can't. So they keep on looking at yeah. you, they keep on trying to categorize you, they get it right, they get it wrong. And you're like, oh, I just want to go home. I, I can't. It's too much. It's emotionally exhausting for me. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation... Yeah, that's very powerful. I remember speaking with somebody once, a detransitioner, who was talking about how, like, you know, what do you say when you meet someone at your part-time job that's like, so what are you up to? What have you been up to the last couple of years? Or, you know, it's like, how do you even begin to explain the roller coaster of, yeah. you know, crazy psychological stuff and medical stuff like how do you even begin to tell a person about you like even if you want to you know because I think so much about there there are a lot of parallels here and I just want to point out I think what we're saying is a little bit yeah radical I think Mm. Mm. we're trying very hard not to commodify the detransitioner in this conversation what we're saying is these are human beings and the same patterns of believing in this moral imperative and like making your identity the the biggest part of who you are. All of that is a bit of a trap, what we're saying, right? So, I mean, I totally see how like a person who's interested in transitioning, they don't want, for example, to spend time with people who knew them in their old identity. So they have to go to college and make all new trans friends and like build this new trans identity. And the same thing is kind of happening with the person who's detransitioning it's like I I don't want anybody who knew me before right so that I could just be myself now be my biological sex self but there's all this complicated stuff especially if your appearance has become somewhat ambiguous or you know you're, you're meeting a new person and they're like so tell me about who you are and and maybe you spent the last five years of your life putting everything on hold for this promise of transition. So it's very complicated. And, you know, maybe you spent the last five years of your life looking at yourself. There's been a massive emphasis on how you look in the mirror, on the filters, on social media, on the photos and out in the world constantly. Yeah. How am I passing? Am I passing? How do I look? How do I look? And to tear yourself away from thinking like that, because 
because you said you might look ambiguous or you might look very male when you want to look female, etc., etc. There's lots of ways it mightn't be going well for you to take your emphasis off your looks when you've trained your brain to think about your looks at all times. Yeah, takes a lot of effort. And I've noticed with with some uh, beyond transitions I've worked with, they've they've let go of the identity. They've freed themselves from the identity. But the looks thing is just hanging on to them. They're so used to worrying about their looks. But I want to point out, because we, we do, of course we do. We've got a podcast on gender, so we, we do talk about it in detail. But we could be in danger of exceptionalizing this. Like I've worked with addicts and I, I always say, you know, with addicts, you know, you, you there's a euphoria when they fir- first give up. Not always, but very often there's a euphoria mm. when they first give up. Then there's the kind of cold hard reality of actual life without you know your addiction without your kind of your your mental release of the drug of choice and then I always kind of think we have to come to this point in the therapy if we're to go through it and beyond it it's the the walk in like they walk in like they've just walked into a train with with kind of tragedy on their face and I think here it comes and it's Mm. regret over the lost years and it's like I've wasted 20 years of my life. I lost my wife. I lost my children. I lost my house. I lost my great career. I lost everything. I don't have very much to live for. And I'm in a a pretty seedy place. And I don't have all that promise that I had. It's gone. It went into addiction. It's gone. Now all I can really hope for is a pretty mundane job in a pretty small place to live and the the desolation is very hard for for somebody to live with and you can see how they could go back to addiction it was better it, do you know what i mean so that happens in other contexts you know what i mean it it, it happens in mental health a lot so there mm. is there is parallels i just want to say that for anybody who thinks there's nothing like no there is this is i've i've yeah. worked through this many times with people and they lost everything and they still yeah. go on to find a way to have a life that is satisfying. Yeah. I, I agree with you 100% when we think broadly about like this dynamic of something has been destroyed. Um, and there's, there's something a little bit different that I just want to maybe lift up and we can talk about. I I don't know if this is the case, but I'm guessing that with a lot of people who struggled with addiction, there's this sense of, I did this to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, there are lots of cases, I think, when young people become addicted to drugs and alcohol under the influence of like a friend or a boyfriend or a husband, like that happens too. Um, But this is lifting up something really complicated about the detransition experience, which is there is a medical system that should be held responsible. Yes. And detransitioners have learned that in my youth, in my naivety, in my delusion, I had a fantasy that I thought was going to make everything better. And there is something about the detransition experience, which is like, I can be foolish sometimes. I can be wrong 
I can have an unrealistic fantasy and I can recognize all the people who propped it up. Like there's a lot of contributing factors. Like I was taught this at school or the GSA club egged me on Mm. or this older person online groomed me. Like Mm. there are definitely other players in this story, but there's something at the core of this, which is like, we're all vulnerable to adopting a fantasy and it can be so powerful. It can be like a freight train, like, I remember when I was young, if my parents joke, like if I wanted something, nobody was going to stop me. It didn't matter like how young I was. I was a very forceful person and like, I didn't care what anybody thought. So I know like, had I been young today, if this had been something that gripped me, yes, no therapist, no parent, like, I don't know if anyone would have stopped me from getting what I wanted. And I think there's something to learn about like, humility and like sometimes we can trick ourselves which is a universal psychological concept right that's part of what therapy is about like how do you see through your own bs and then you know it doesn't help of course that there's a whole culture and industry which is egging on this this you know maybe naive fantasy right but that's just so it's just an interesting thing when i think about the addiction story and the detransition story there are some different elements, but some of it actually kind of touches on like fundamental lessons we have to learn about our own naivety. Yeah. And if you look at like, I'm not a, a great fan of the 12 steps, even though I know a lot of people work in the 12 steps program and, you know, seven, I think out of the 12 steps mention God or a higher power. So that's quite difficult, but there's some real wisdom in it. There's some real wisdom. And one of them is humility. The, the yeah. kind of realization of you, me and all that, we, we, we can become very grandiose in our grand plans. And then we 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 meet ourselves, our flawed selves. And it takes a huge courage to face, to be humil to, to have humility. It can it really does take an awful lot of courage. And it's very, very hard to sit with. It's very yeah. hard to sit with that. I think um, I think I'd love to really study if I if I had enough time of the day and I don't the <laughs> psychology of regret. Very few mm. very few people in the world are, are brave enough to regret. It, it's a huge thing to do. To be most people assimilate. You know, you have a terrible marriage and you think, oh well, it made me the person I am, or you know, I got my kids out of it, or I had to go through it. That's what most of us do. It's like a psychological survivor instinct in us. That we don't yeah. regret, we we because we can't because it's evolutionarily so horrifying that we've done some large scale event that we completely regret. So I always think there's some extraordinary courage for somebody who says, "I regret, I completely regret." Yeah, that yeah, could suffocate your will to live. It could suffocate you if you weren't careful because you are really going to the. The, the essence of, of, of kind of your survivor spirit, where no matter what we kind of hit with, we think I can do this, I can handle it, I'll assimilate mm. it. I think they're huge. I just think psychologically there are huge asks on our psyche. And yeah. it doesn't surprise me, which is why we named it Beyond Trans, the, the service, the Genspec service because we wanted to give room for people if they wanted to, you know, some people retransition, some people move out, some people stay in transition 
because some people find, and I, I know people won't like me saying this, but some people find the detransition life very difficult and they think, I'm going back in to trans, but I'm not the same person and I don't pretend, I'm not living a fake life. I'm basically living the life that my body is demanding of me from society because I'm getting so much pushback from the stranger on the bus, from the shop, from everywhere. It's so exhausting trying to look like this when I look Mm. like this. And I want to just liberate myself from it. I don't know what the answer is. I I have no idea. But I do know Mm. how you could... It's the exhaustion that drives people to make these decisions, one way or the other. Yeah. There's so much here. Mm. And and what's so incredible is just how... Like like we touched on earlier, we're learning as we go. Yeah, I mean, we we don't have any definitive answers about what this detransition experience means, where it's going, how this will evolve. Um, one one thing I've noticed with with Beyond Trans that a lot of like you know, like I say, we're getting about one one request a day now, which it's going to become unsustainable. We're going to need other organizations to kind of give more services because this, it can't go on as such like this. But I've noticed there's a lot of questions about medical queries, like you're just saying there. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, I've got a sore voice, a sore throat ever since I took testosterone. Will it go away? We don't know. Mm. My voice is very deep. Will it lighten? Because I've noticed how Helena, a very well-known detransitioner, her voice has lightened. Will mine? We don't know. Male pattern baldness. Will it come back? Because it seems to have come back with some detransitioners. We don't know. And it's it's just a series of we don't know. Fertility questions. Like, I took testosterone for X amount of years. Will this impact my fertility? We don't know. I mean, there's so many unknowns. I'm glad you brought this up because I want to make sure um, to mention there's a really great paper that I read recently about uh, breastfeeding regret with a detransitioner after she had a double mastectomy and she then you know, detransition, became pregnant, had a baby. And this paper is just about how little is known about this, how poorly, um, what a poor job physicians are doing, talking with people who are considering top surgery, mastectomy, about the possibility of, you know, regretting not being able to breastfeed. And she kind of describes this, this patient in the, in the paper talking about how when she had her son, they, they put him skin to skin on her and she saw him like rooting around, like crawling up to her chest, rooting around. Uh, it's like going to make me cry. And she just felt so, she felt so many complicated feelings. She felt an incredible amount of just loss and grief or, of not being able to connect with her baby that way. Then she went to like a breast milk donation center and felt terrible guilt for getting breast milk that she wondered, is this supposed to go to other babies? And I mean, she had a very affectionate, close relationship with her son, who she feels incredibly bonded with. But just, this is a complicated, complicated experience. This is just like one of many things that a person can undergo in the process of, quote, gender affirming care that needs to be given a lot of thought, you know? And something I appreciated too about this paper, which we'll link is a great deal of honesty. This this person said, 
even if people had talked to me about this when I was transitioning, I don't think it would have made a difference. Yeah. You know, like that's important to recognize because a lot of people say, I wish someone had stopped me. And look, I agree. I tell parents all the time, you need to try and put some speed bumps in your kid's path. Not necessarily because it's going to work, but just so that they know somebody who loves me thinks this yeah. is a bad idea. Just yeah. that, that knowledge alone. But, you know... It's really hard to say in hindsight, had someone said this to me, I might not have done it. It's just, we don't know that. Nobody can do that. Yeah, it's, like, it's like the question of regret that you like to talk about, you know? Yeah, and it's it's like a lot of mental health. It can be, it's steel trap mind. Like, you know, it can be trying to stop an anorexic from under eating. It can be like trying to stop somebody who's an addiction just get out of my yeah. way and give me the whiskey. I can't hear you. I can't see you. Just get out of my way and give it. It becomes so kind of fundamental. The The ability to stop somebody in the throes of that is very limited as thousands of years of people who've loved people yeah. who have tried. I do think another aspect that is, you know, we're Jen Spector having a conference and the, 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 there is going to be a workshop by, um, um, a former guest of ours, Leonore Tiefer, um, about sex and relationships. Yeah. And that is a huge, huge issue among people who feel they've, 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 on some level, you know, they have ruined their body on some level or certainly their sexual parts. And they, yeah. they, they can feel so sure that they'll never have a companion they can feel so sure they can feel so lonely they can almost self-sabotage by going out and not telling somebody that they're d-trans until you get into the bedroom and there's so many complicated kind of issues around sex oh. and also like you might you know these some of them are very young 25 I'm, I'm like am i am i am i not going to fall in love am i not going to have a companion it is a huge burden. And it's, again, I would say very strongly, we don't know about that. We don't, we don't yeah. know who's going to fall for who and how do we navigate that. I, I think that's, that's, it's a huge sadness, but it's also, it's, it's an unknown, unknown there. Mm. So we, we really don't know. We don't know a lot of things, but I think you and I know some things. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I would ask, like, <laughs> given that this is getting a lot more public attention, like yeah. the concept of detransition, of course, I think we've shared a lot of thoughts and ideas and just kind of ramblings about this. Is there anything that you think the public really misunderstands that you want to clarify or like straighten out? Like, what's your sense of you know, lots more people are learning about detransition. And like we've talked about these people, unfortunately, getting slotted into some political identity, which we're trying to dispel mm. that in this episode, right? But anything else that's misunderstood? I think, and I, 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 this is my own feeling, and if people want to write in and tell us or tell us on social media, yeah. please do. But my feeling is that there's a blandness to understanding. Often the kind of the non-detransitioner thinks, oh, that's so awful, I couldn't go through that, can't imagine it. While, you know what I mean, the complexity of being the detransition person is, um, it's, it's, sometimes people act as if, well, now you're safe. If you follow me, you've stopped. The oh, med- yeah. Yeah. Now you're out of it. And it's like, now you're starting the long, hard road to some sort of recovery. It's the end of the beginning. 
You know what I mean? It's it's yeah. there's a lot ahead. And people think because they've stopped the medical transition, they've stopped the psychological falseness that they were telling themselves that we that it's know, all smooth sailing or something from here. here. Yeah. And off you go. And we, yeah. yeah, I know it's very difficult about your body, but honestly, you're out of the cult or something like that, they say. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really minimizing the massive massive psychological kind of distress that they have to work through it frightens me sometimes how much they have yeah. to work through and I, I I really think that we have to be really really gentle around that and understand that you can go forward you can go back you can go for you know what I mean that it's a very mm. there's an awful lot of uh, kind of prevarication and one other thing I, I think is now you've said it you've started a train for <laughs> some not all. Some of them, they lose their gender dysphoria. They lose the the identity and they move on. And I think that's a little bit easier. For some, they keep their gender dysphoria. They still want to be a man. They still want to look like a man. But they realise it didn't work medically. It didn't work. I never became a man. It was all um, it was all kind of cloak and daggers. It, it wasn't true. Smokescreen or something. And um, I've still got gender dysphoria. And I still wake up every day. I still kind of deal. I think people forget that some detransitioners, many detransitioners, detransitioners, are experienced quite severe gender dysphoria that comes and goes and can come much harder sometimes. And they can often, I think more than any of them are are admitting, flirt with, you know, presenting as, as the opposite sex quietly in their own town and then mm-hmm. maybe go all mm-hmm. online and mm-hmm. be all detransy. I'd say there's a lot of that sort of thing going on. I, of course it is, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I like drink or mm-hmm. have a quick drink, you know, <laughs> 72 days since I've had a drink and it's not quite. Wow. That's interesting. So kind yeah. of another double life situation, which is I so think- common for ROGD kids, the double life. It's a double life. I think it's happening more than we realize. And I I, I'm, I know it's happening. But not only that, I, I kind of segued into that. But what I wanted to say is the gender dysphoria can feel really hard. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of people who are who are gathering around people who are detransitioned, they don't want to hear that they still have gender dysphoria. They, they yeah. don't really, that doesn't sit comfortably with them. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think this is really just highlighting how complicated and different experiences can be because like, you know, one of the things that we've talked about before and I think is really important is having a sense of, of hope and of rebuilding. And when I've seen detransition people who seem to be doing well in a kind of holistic way, what it seems like is like the detransition process is a reckoning with reality which, like I said, I think that is the start of any psychologically well journey, right, yeah. towards wholeness. Yeah. Like, we have yeah. to be in reality. Yeah. And that, that some, some trans people are in reality, and so they, they can move towards wellness even while trans. So I don't think it's like a kind of – I don't mean to say that in order to be healthy, you have to, like – uh, disavow transition as a thing mm-hmm. but for the people who are kind of in a fantasy bubble they they come back to reality and then they rebuild and you know I've seen people talking about how like they just slowly little by little made choices about their health and their well-being and their social life and 
just inched, inched their way towards taking care of themselves in a way that felt really different from maybe their transition, which was maybe like some form of self-sabotage or some kind of self-harm. So I think you're right that it can be very hard, but I also, I just would like listeners to know that there, there's also hope for rebuilding a life. Yeah. You reminded me of that lovely Carl Jung quote, the right way to wholeness is is oh. made up unfortunately by by fateful detours and wrong turnings. Mm. I could I yeah. could put that in my head because every day I seem to take a fateful detour and a wrong turning. But yeah. you know what I mean. Uh, it we is, all do, don't we? Don't we? And sometimes yeah. we go in deep, deep, deep into a fateful you know detour and a wrong turning, and you it's just part of the the the, the kind of the pattern of life. And I, I, yeah. I don't think you and I really address, but we have addressed it in other episodes, the, the murderous rage towards the professionals that led them to there. Instead, we yes. just went into where, where, where they went in their own head. Do you follow well, me? Let's spend a few moments yeah. there. I mean, this is but important. Like it is very much accepted. We, our, our, our entire kind of our project with our podcast is centered around, do you know what I mean? Like professional, yeah. really, you know what I mean? So I, I would never minimize it. And I think that added to, like, I, you know, I talked about the addict and all that. The feeling that a professional nodded me through at my most vulnerable at my weakest point, where I was yeah. effectively mentally the equivalent of in an ambulance. Help me, help me, help me. And that person who was administering to me led me down a, a terrible, terrible path. And they're nowhere to be seen. When I email them, they don't even answer me. That is devastating. Yeah. Yeah. That is just, uh, it's like abandonment and injury and betrayal and flippancy, you know? I think, I of course have no idea what it's like to experience this detransition experience, but when I think about a person coming to a doctor in pain... yeah with real distress and when a doctor just is like oh just this thing is fine no complications to worry about that is just so dangerous and so careless and such a complete like neglecting of the responsibility to care to care for someone in distress it's really a horrible, a horrible experience. And to think that, you know, the, the loss, one, one thing in my work with detransitioners has really come up so often, the loss of trust in anybody or anything. Because how could yeah. you trust? Because I was at my weakest and I did the right thing. I went to the professionals to look for mental health because I knew I was in trouble. And when I did the right thing, even though I was so weak, I was brought down a terrible, terrible path. And now it's some years later, it's all gone wrong. And to ask myself to go back into a therapist's office, I underestimated. I knew it, but I didn't know it. Do you know that now I have a depth of knowing of the, the absolute deep, deep, deep distrust of anybody who's in an office saying, come and tell me about it. 
you know, it feels like the scene of the crime. It feels like this is this is where I got attacked in this exact manner, in a warm relationship where I put my trust in somebody who seemed wise. And so to be able to do it again is arguably, um, you know, I, I noticed one detransition and I thought it was such a lovely pin tweet. And the person said, these are the books that got me through my detransition. Yeah. And I thought, I get oh, it. Oh, we should find that. Yeah. Yeah, actually, because they're a great list of books and I know where they are. Okay. I'll get that's them. That's great. We'll yeah. include it. I just thought that's such an empowering way to go at it, if you follow me, rather than a kind of... Um, and I, I say that who's somebody who's trying to give therapy to, you know, yeah, I know. It, has to, it has to be so gentle. And the the person who's in, in the detransition space needs to kind of always feel like they're in charge and tread very, very slowly because the days of tr- putting your trust in somebody else are kind of over forever. I, I've noticed that I, I don't think they'll they'll regain trust in the institutions, in the authority yeah. figures. And I think that's fair enough. I think I think I've seen that, especially when the clinician was like a gender clinician with a purely affirmative approach. And it's it's interesting because I've seen some other people who detransition almost like defending their therapist, saying like, you know, yeah. I got a good process, but you know, yeah. we we both decided that transition was right for me, which I find really interesting. And I'm curious like if we caught up with a person like that ten years later, would they feel the same way? You know, and it's 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 kind of like that thing, like we, we can't afford to have regrets sometimes. Mm. Obviously some people do because they're raging and they're very angry. God but some them. people are just like well, I think I just, you know, got a good process and yeah, it's really to, interesting. Can I just say, though, that's what's so deceptive about um, effectively bad therapy is it's often very pleasant. <laughs> if you follow me, if you have somebody nodding along in a soothing manner when you're very distressed and kind of encouraging you to take whatever kind of decision you come up with in your distress and say, yeah, I think you can handle that. Yeah, I think that could be for you that you'll find it hard to say that was wrong for me because I always felt good when I left. But if you look back and you think, well, but in the 15 months, I took really difficult decisions that have wrecked my life in many ways. And they just, they never challenged it. They never gave me another option. They led me along. You know what I mean? So just because you felt good in the moment doesn't mean it was good therapy. That's that's affirmative therapy for you. It's it's deceptively pleasant, but it's like a friend who will just nod along and they won't engage in a way that yeah. somebody loves you will and say, really, are you sure? Can we look at this? And that's mm. the kind of the deeper relationship of your partner or your very good friend or your sibling or and you'll know, oh, this is hard work, but actually I need this. Oh, that's so deep. Oh, God, there's so many directions we could go. It's almost like you you have to, you have to, in a way, really love your client to worry about them enough to say, wait a minute. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a concept that's not talked about at all in therapy, because it's quite taboo to talk about affection for your client Mm. in that way. Irvin Yalom but if you, on it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to yeah. engage in. And if you're not engaging in, are you 
giving a good therapeutic process. I don't know. I think you have to go all in. I feel like let's do an episode on like like the concept of love in therapy. Like we should do an episode on that. That would be amazing. It's not talked about, and it's really complicated to even think about. But we, we many therapists, whether it's gender dysphoria or otherwise. I think see themselves as a neutral party that is supposed to just be almost like blank canvas, give their client Mm. a place to bounce ideas, which that's part of it, obviously. Mm. Right. Mm. But you're right. There's maybe a lack of care about what's going to happen to this person Mm. actually, if they do this. Yeah. I think if you're an ethical therapist, you've got to get in the trenches with them you know, mentally and say, what are we doing here? <laughs> what are and, and if And if you are a therapist who's been trained into the affirmative model, then you really believe it's going to help, which is the, oh, the yeah. mental pretzel that's, you know, we're all in. Like, wow. I think these clinicians genuinely believe this is going to help. Some are flippant and like, you know, lack care, but I think some really think. Okay. Well, we've, we've given this a lot of thought the detransition episode and we will include all the links we talked about obviously we're going to revisit this this is changing so quickly in the culture and we're going to be touching on this again certainly yeah i think it's a it's a it's a hard road i think i'm glad like there's nearly 45,000 people on reddit detrans and if you haven't looked at reddit detrans look at reddit detrans so you can have a look at it I do think that, like, if you can at all, I, I hate to plug it, but, you know, s- support Genspect so that we can continue to give services to people who are beyond transition. I do think it's important that we, we do in, in some way. But I, I think if you are somebody who's lost in transition, people before us have gone through awful things and come out and had meaning, meaningful lives. There's lots of ways to have a, a good, satisfying life. Loads of ways that you haven't even thought of if you're 25 yeah. or 30 or 35 or 40. That there's loads of ways we can go. And to kind of don't think that there's there's only one solution. There's there's generally loads of different ways you can go. So I, right. I hope I hope we've helped them out, anybody who is listening. Yeah, I hope so too. Mm. Well, we'll see you next time, Stella. Yeah, see ya. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.